Let's turn to Isaiah 9 this morning. Now, as we go there, I want you to think for me, think with me for a moment. Now, I am uh, 54, turned 54 this year, so this makes, what, my 55th Christmas? Is that how the math goes? Something like that? Um, And I was thinking as as I was was getting ready for this, how many Advent or Christmas sermons either I had heard or preached in my life? And uh, I figured that there were at least over 200 that I had either been in that position or in this position to do, because you figure there are four every year, uh, maybe a Christmas Eve or two. um, And, you know, there were some I don't remember when... You know, hard to remember when you were this tall. But then you think of throughout the years. And there are only so many passages that really you hear in Christmas, right? I mean, you you know we're going to Isaiah. You know we're going to Luke or Matthew. We might hit Micah and and things like that. And and over the course, now you think, Randy, 200 sermons, that's a lot. Remember, some of you were a little older than me. And you may have heard 300 Advent sermons or Christmas sermons over the course of your life. And then you think, you think, wow, that, that is quite a few. Now, how many have I heard on Isaiah 7, 14? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. How many have I, have heard, have I heard on Isaiah chapter 9, where the, the, uh, the names of Christ are laid out for us? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. How many times have I heard those things talked about or mentioned? So... There might be in, in some, and this isn't everybody, but there might be in some recess of your mind a, 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 a little thought that, well, I've been there, heard that. wonder what's for lunch. Okay? Um, but I want you to think also that, that there is a difference between hearing this passage when you're 15 or hearing it when you're 20 or 30 and then hearing it again when you're 60 or 65. Think of the maturity that has happened in, the, in those years. Think of the things that have happened. Think of what you've been through, how the Lord has sustained you, how he has challenged you. Uh, I would hope to think, and in my own life too, after 200 sermons, I would hope that this is far richer today than it was when I first heard it maybe when I was 15 or when I first heard it when I was 20 or when I'd heard it for the fourth time when I was 30. That over the years, these things mean more to us because we understand God's grace to a greater degree because we have experienced more of the Lord, more of his challenges, more of his care in our life, more of his sustaining grace. So as we come to a passage that might be very familiar to us, today I I will pray that, that it is richer and deeper than it has ever been to us. So if you're able, would you stand? And I will read from Isaiah chapter 9. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would open our eyes, send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, enliven our hearts and our minds, that we might not just see the words on the page, but they might come alive in our lives, that that the coming of Christ would mean even more to us this year than it has ever been because of our understanding of Scripture, because of your work in our lives. Speak to us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I will read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Now, before we start, okay, 
I, I don't want to dampen your enthusiasm for the word, but I really don't like the translation that we're going to read from today because it puts it in the wrong tense. Okay, now for those of you who might be reading an ESV, um, it has the right tense. This passage is in the past tense. Okay, I know that the New American Standard gives it in a future tense, but in the Hebrew it is in the past tense, and I'll explain more of that later. Okay, just, just want you to be ready for that. Verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of the burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will bring for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm a better Hebrew scholar than the guys who wrote this one and translated it, but you'll see. You'll see. Okay, when we looked last week at, at Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam, we saw in the midst of his disobedience, in the midst of the doubting of the sufficiency of God's word, remember, Satan came along and said, did God really say that? So Adam kind of said, hmm, maybe I, I know better than God. Maybe, I, I, maybe my will is better than God's will. We see in the midst of this fall, in the midst of this sin, the first indication of the coming of the Savior, the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we understand that sin was part of our Heavenly Father's plan in order to bring about a Savior. It wasn't plan B that he had to come up with and said, oh, that pesky man, uh, sin caught me by surprise, now I've got to come up with an answer. The answer was always Christ. The plan was always Christ. The plan was always the fall so that his grace and his mercy might be demonstrated in our lives to his praise and to his glory. So we have this combination of a background of what appears to be, in the Genesis 3, a disaster. We have the definite promise of hope. But even the promise of hope really is surprising in the midst of that, that fall. And we looked at, at how the victory of the Savior w will happen. And it will cost him his life. So the victory was going to come through the descendant of the, through the seed of the woman, but yet it would cost him his life to save the likes of us. So we have a promise of hope, but the hope is fulfilled in a very surprising fashion through the death of a perfect Savior. So let's fast forward, oh, a thousand or two years or so, to Isaiah chapter 7. So go back a couple pages to Isaiah chapter 7. And, and we'll see what is going on here in the context of, really, it's 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's a, it's a whole 
um, a, a, whole, a whole grouping here of historic context and what these prophecies mean. I mean the prophecy from 7 and the prophecy from 9. Isaiah is going to elaborate on that promise given in Genesis 3 of the coming of the Savior. It's a promise that a virgin shall conceive. Look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now the context for this prophecy uh, really is uh, with King Ahaz. King Ahaz was not um, a very good king. He wasn't a godly king. Uh, He was a uh, politically minded guy. He wasn't a righteous guy. And he is being threatened, or the Judah, he's king of the southern kingdom, is being threatened by two kings from the north. Two kings from the north. And Ahaz, in order to resist the invasion of these two kings, decides that he's going to align himself with a larger power in the geographic area, and that power is Assyria. Now, if you do a little homework and dig up Assyria, Assyria was bad. Assyria was pagan. It was the nastiest group in the country, in in the country, uh, geographically speaking. But they were also the strongest and the most powerful nation in that area at that time. Now, uh, it has been clear through all the kings um, that you do not align yourself with pagan nations. Now, it's as if, uh, I'll put words in God's mouth here. It says, I am God. I have created you. I have saved you. You are my people. You are my special people. If all you do is, all you have to do is to obey me and trust in me and I will protect you. Sounds pretty simple if you ask me, right? But here comes Ahaz. And, and Ahaz is, uh, uh, he's not godly. He doesn't know the things of God. He doesn't remember these promises. Uh, He doesn't think that aligning himself with an idolatrous pagan nation will in any way affect him or Judah negatively. Now remember what the Lord said to Joshua as the people of God hit the promised land. It sounds very hard to us, but it has a very important purpose. He said, go in and kill who? Everybody. Wipe out everybody. Everybody in that city. Wipe out everything in that city. Don't leave. In some places it wasn't. Don't even leave any animals. Don't leave anything there. The whole reason for that was so that their idolatry did not infect the covenant people of God. And there were cities and there were peoples that they left and bypassed and didn't destroy all of them. And they came back and infiltrated their idolatry into the people of God. So... Isaiah is trying to remind Ahaz about the promises of God. And so he comes to Ahaz and says, here, I know what you've got planned, and this is what I want you to do so that we can bolster your confidence. Ask of God any sign that you will, any sign so that you can know that he will protect you. Now, now just think of that. Who else asked for a sign? Well, a lot of people ask for a sign in Scripture, but Gideon asked for a sign. And then Gideon looked at the fleece in the morning, and the fleece was wet, and the ground around it was dry. And he thought, well, you know, that can happen in, real, in regular life. Um, so how about I ask for another sign that in the morning the fleece is dry and the ground around it is wet? And God granted him that, and yes, it was. So he says, Ahaz, you, you can ask for any sign that you want, and the Lord will do it 
to confirm in your heart that you don't need to align yourself with the Assyrians. All you have to do is rely upon God and he will protect you. And Ahaz does not ask for a sign. He does not want to bother the Lord, so to speak, by, by showing up and giving him a sign that will get in the way of his plans. I mean, Ahaz thinks, I've got my plans. Don't confuse me with the promises of God. Don't confuse me with anything miraculous that might take me away from my plans. So he doesn't ask for a sign. He says, I'm not going to bother the Lord with a sign. So Isaiah says, well, this will be the sign that the Lord will give you. And here you have it. In verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And it goes on. We read that together. Now, you'll remember that God had promised David that his throne would be an everlasting throne, that a descendant of David would be on that throne for all eternity. And Ahaz, in his mind, kind of sees him as sees himself as the protector of that throne, the protector of that line. So he thinks he has to do it himself. How many people have thrown themselves against, in a sense, the perfection of God and says, I'm going to make God happy by doing it this way. I'm going to get myself right with God and I'm going to do it this way only to find out that you can't be perfect. You can't get yourself right with God. It is his work that does it. He does the work. Because look at verse 14 again. The Lord will give you a sign. He will do it. He will give you a sign. All right. So things look bad for Judah, for Ahaz. So if you look at verses, uh, hmm, where do we want to turn here? Uh, Chapter 8, verse 2. So you have a lot of people who are on Ahaz's side and say, yeah, Ahaz, this is what you ought to do. Trust in, in, in your own, you know, trust the Assyrians. Forget about the Lord. Trust the Assyrians. So he's getting bad counsel from the priest, and he's getting bad counsel from Zechariah, who's a false prophet. And so the Lord, in his providence and, and, and my opinion, some sense of humor, he makes these guys who don't believe witnesses to the promise and witnesses that this is what the Lord will do. You don't believe it, you're going to be there and you're going to witness it. Okay, You're going to hear this from the Lord and this is what is going to happen. Now we get to our chapter, chapter 9 and the confirmation of what the Lord will do here. So as I said earlier, I, I, don't, I, don't, want to, I don't want to put myself above the translators of the New American Standard, but... You know, according to other scholars, which and the ESV is probably the best translation that we have today, this is what's this is in the past tense. Now you might think, well, why is it a prophecy about the future, but yet it is written in the past tense? Well, that is a Hebrew. Um, uh, what's the word I want? A Hebrew technique for prophecy. If you talk about something that is in the future, and if you talk about it as it's in the as if it is in the past, you get the sense that it is already done, that it is accomplished, that these things are in the bank. If you look at uh, Paul, does this in Romans chapter eight when it talks about uh, those who God has chosen, uh, justified. Um, 
somebody should help me. So you should all, you should all have this memorized. Uh, and, but at the end, he says, glorified. Okay, that's the golden chain of salvation, Romans 8, uh, 29, 30. Uh, and the last word is glorified. Now, we know we're not glorified until we stand before the Lord in his presence. But he talks about it in the past tense, as if it has already happened. The Hebrew prophets do this now and then as well. They talk about an event yet to happen as if it's already happened, as if it has already happened. So let's look at at chapter 9 here. In in verses 1 and 2, we see kind of the the gloom and the darkness, and and things aren't going very well here. And then we get to verse 3. Thou shalt multiply the nation, increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence with the gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Okay, he speaks as if this has already happened. Okay, as if this has already happened. The prophetic past tense, that's what it's technically called, the prophetic past tense, is designed to assure the hearers that what they're hearing will come to be, because who guarantees it? God. It's not King Ahaz is not guaranteeing this. He's trying to guarantee a victory, but he cannot guarantee it. Only our Heavenly Father can guarantee the security of his people. Now, Not only does he guarantee the security of people, the second thing we need to notice is that he does it. He does it. A child is born for them. A child is sent to them. For the Lord himself will do this. He will bring it about. And this child is going to do a work for them. A work for a vicarious work. Again, chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days as you have never seen. It is God's work here. This is not Ahaz's work. The Lord wants to make that very clear. The Lord will do this. Luke picks this up in Luke chapter 2. Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. It doesn't say just Savior's been born. It's been born for you. The child's birth is for his people. It is for the well-being of his people. He has come to save his people. Not just make salvation a possibility. He has come to definitely save his people. Now remember last week, when the Lord came to Adam and Eve, he did not lay out for them this great long list of all the things that they had to do to make up for disobeying God. Now that you've disobeyed me, here are the eight gazillion things you have to do to get right back in in my good graces. He did not say that. He said, I'm going to curse the ground because of you, and I'm going to do the work to draw you back in my presence. He says, I am going to send you the one who will fix what you have broken. Now, let's look at the first name of the one who has come to save us. Chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, will be born to us, will be given to us, The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. 
So we get a compound name to start off. These are not two separate names. That is one name, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful, in the Hebrew word, Pela, means, and I'll just read this verbatim, something uncommon or out of the ordinary. A phenomenon lying outside the realm of human explanation, that which is separated from the normal course of events, something that cannot be explained. We might call that a miracle. Okay, That's what wonderful means, a miracle. The writers of the Old Testament used it for the acts of God over opposed to the acts of men. Gideon uses it in response to what the Lord does. He calls it wonderful. Now, I had a professor in seminary, and uh, she was a process theologian. Now, a process theologian is someone who believes that that all things go in a process and they unfold. And this event causes that event and that event causes the next event like that. And our lives are basically a closed system. The entire world is a closed system and is once the process got started, there is no room for anything coming from outside the system. So that means she did not believe in miracles. Okay, she did not believe that God would interject himself into this world. So she had a real problem with Isaiah 14. She had a real problem with the resurrection. Now, I, I, a seminary professor in theology. I, I never did well in her class, i got to say. Okay? I never did very well there. In fact, there was, and she told this story to us, so I, you know, I can share it with you. On a good Friday, somebody calls the seminary. And wants to know what Good Friday and what Easter are all about. Now, you would think that, okay, well, I'd, I'd like, you know, where, where are you going to turn to find the truth about this type of thing? How about a place of theological education? Well, she happened to be the only one present in the theology department, so they got her on the phone. And, you know, what, what an opportunity. How many of us have had somebody come to us on Good Friday or any time in our life and say, can you tell me what Easter's about? I mean, sometimes the door, the door that the Lord opens is this big, and you've got to kind of get your nose in and ask questions. And other times he just flings the door open and says, here, share your faith with this person. Can you tell me what Easter's about? And she said, well, what do you think it's about? <laughs> we, we asked her in class, didn't, didn't you share the gospel? I said, well, I didn't think it was really that time to share the gospel. I'm like, oh, no. Yes, it was the time to share the gospel. The miraculous. That's what Christ is. He comes from outside of us, and he is placed in this world. He is wonderful. He is wonderful. If you go down through all of his ministry, all of his existence, he didn't, he didn't come into his existence. He's always been. He's always been wonderful. He's wonderful in his in eternality. Uh, he's wonderful at his birth. He's wonderful in all of his ministry. Uh, he is wonderful, above all, in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. All of these things expose to us the supernatural presence and the supernatural character of the wonderful counselor. He's wonderful in his entire ministry, in his past, in his present, in his future. Just think of when Mary brought forth that the, the firstborn son, the eternal became an infant. 
And in her arms she held an infant who was infinite, who had no beginning and no end, who would be the Savior of the world. And at that moment she knew it because the angel had come to her and said, this is the child who would be born to you. Before the beginning began, the word was with God and the word was God. That's John chapter 1 verse 1. So he is wonderful in his past. He is the eternal one who exists beyond our finite comprehension. Beyond what we are able to grasp. He's wonderful because he has overcome death. Because his death was able to bring an end to the punishment for sin for those who belong to Christ. Only in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ can we find this this harmony between the justice of God and the mercy of God. The justice of God demands punishment for sin, and we are all worthy of that punishment. But yet, because of Christ, we find the mercy of God. The mercy of God. God provided the sacrifice that he demanded for the payment of our sin. The second part, counselor. Now, the Hebrew word used here pictures a king who stands up in front of his people and gives them wise counsel. Now, kings usually have people that they go in the back room and they kibitz with and come out with a plan, okay? Uh, Well, there's nobody for Christ, no need for Christ to go and kibitz with anybody because he and the Father are one. They are the same essence. They have the same will. Everything that the Father does The father desires, the son carries out. So when anyone comes to him, he gives them perfect counsel. This does not mean that we will understand his counsel. It doesn't mean we will even like his counsel or his will. But yet it is perfect. It carries out the things of God. Now we might not think that a violent death of a man is a wise way to take away our sin, but yet that is the way that our Heavenly Father put his plan to work, and carried it out in a perfect fashion. Now Ahaz, back to, back to the context here, Ahaz trusts in human wisdom, and he forms an alliance with a pagan nation, the Assyrians. In other words, Ahaz is not a wise man. He is not taking good counsel. He is not giving good counsel. And there's a child who's going to be born with heavenly wisdom, and his counsel will be spiritual, and it will be perfect. And Isaiah kept telling Ahaz, don't align yourself with the Assyrians. Align yourself with God. That was godly wisdom. And Ahaz lost. But you know who took over? It wasn't the two kingdoms that were invading. It was Assyria who he aligned himself with. They saw the opportunity and came in and took over the place. You see, human wisdom made him think that he was smarter than God. Not that any of us have ever thought that. Ahaz probably thought, well, Isaiah, I know, I know you're a prophet, and, and, and I know your world is really, uh, I mean, you're just a religion guy. Okay, You really don't understand geopolitical issues. You don't understand war. I'm king. I understand this. And I'm going to save my people, and I'm going to make a way that my nation survives. And see, his problem was, was I problem, because it was all about 
my people and my nation. I'm going to do this. And Isaiah is saying, no, no, the Lord will do this. The Lord will do this. One more thing. Here's the counselor who has worked out his plan of salvation from before the foundations of the earth. He has worked out this plan of election. He has worked out this plan of providence. And remember what he said to the apostles. He said, I have to go. I have to go away. And because I'm going away, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, the counselor who will give you wisdom, who will guide you in all truth. And where does that truth come from? It comes from the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, to us. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, says this about this passage. He says, how complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Almost in the same breath, the prophet calls him a child and a counselor, a son and the everlasting father. There is no contradiction here, and to us scarcely a paradox. But it is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should at the same time be infinite. He who was the man of sorrows should also be God over all, blessed forever, and that he who is in the divine trinity, always called the Son, should nevertheless be correctly called the everlasting Father. How forcibly this should remind us of the necessity of carefully studying and rightly understanding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must not suppose that we shall understand him at a glance. A look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. Glorious mysteries are hidden in his person. He speaks to us in plain language, and he manifests himself openly in our midst, but yet in his person itself there is a height and depth which human intellect fails to measure. So deep is the mystery of the person of our Lord that he must reveal himself to us, or we shall never know him. He is not discovered by research, nor discerned by reason. Remember what he said to Simon. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we think, how could sin be so bad? There was only one remedy for it. How could sin be so great that it would cost the perfect sacrifice that your son would leave your right hand and come into this world and take on the form of a man and give his life for us? But yet that was your plan. That was the way that you decided that we should be restored to your presence. That the wonderful counselor would come into this world Miraculous, wise, gentle, righteous, perfect in all of his form and person. Lord, there is so much yet to understand about him. So many things that we seek to know about Christ and how we are called to live. Reveal to us these things, Lord. That our declaration of the coming of the the Christ child should not just be something that happens uh, because it's Advent and we get excited about it, but because we know it to be true, that we celebrate his coming into this world. He, the only means of our salvation. Lord, 
for thanks in our lives are all that we have to lay before you, but we do so, knowing we are unworthy of this salvation, but yet you bestow it upon us. May we live each and every moment in the light of that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.